Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, March 30th. Uh, we have an interview with Jim Gillies. Jim is a friend of the show. Uh, he's getting into the Matt, Matt Cochran territory, kind of. Uh, kind of, right? yeah. He's been on twice now. Uh, runs Motley Fool. No, he does not run Motley Fool Canada. He works in Motley Fool Canada running Motley hidden Fool Gems. Canada Hidden Gems. Or maybe just Motley Fool Hidden Gems. Whatever. If you like that type of stuff, he's all over it. Great um, you know, he's a foolish investor, which we like, but he's also, he's got a bit of a twist. So we covered sin stocks, <laughs> right? Uh, we covered investing his, uh, with his barbell strategy, some growthier stuff and some real, you know, Berkshire like names. And he's an edgy fool investor. He is definitely an edgy one. And it's, an, it's always fun to talk to him. Yeah. And we compared what, so he lived through the 1990s bubble, the internet bubble. And a lot of people make comparisons now to then. Uh, and he kind of talks about the similarities and differences he's seeing as someone who has lived through both periods. Yeah, he's probably on my Mount Rushmore of in other investors I know to get a beer with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> uh, but we also have a little – well, we're going to do hot water on the back end with buy, sell, hold, and anecdotal evidence. No stories for the week. But we have a pretty big, kind of big announcement, a uh, new show called History of Financial Markets. Uh, it's under another feed, but we'll try to throw the link somewhere in the bio. Um, and you can do you want to just give an explainer yeah, of what so the show is? It's kind of in a, you know, we're still kind of in a testing phase with this, but we figured we'd throw some things out. You could say we're kind of in tech terms, beta testing it, but yeah, it's a history of financial markets. So it's really in the name there. And we cover different periods of history. We focus on the United States in the first season, which is eight episodes, all about 20 to 30 minutes each. We focus on the period of 1900 to 1909. Kind of how the market was, New York Stock Exchange, and the big event was the panic of 1907, which is very exciting, but don't want to spoil everything and don't want to blabber on, so I think that covers it. Okay, and then we have to give our sales pitch. Well, we don't have to. It's our choice, but uh, new 7investing member. Big news. Big wanna, news. What's it, what's his name again? Okay, I hope I'm getting it right. Uh, Honorban Mahanti. He's from, I believe, Australia. Uh, PhD in computer science. I'm seeing this from Simon, who runs Seven Investing. His tweets. So, not only do they have new recommendations coming up, but they got a new member that is going to be giving out some of those nice uh, <laughs> recommendations. But Ryan, before we'll get we'll we'll get going. But and, do you want to just give the the promo code and then we'll? Oh yeah, it's code CCM. You get ten dollars off. But I listened to him on Seven Investing now, and he's big on to innovation. So uh, you know, that's if good. If that's your avenue. This is the time to sign up. Uh, but without further ado, here we go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Today, we are welcomed by Jim Gillies. Uh, I think I first met Jim uh, during my internship this summer at The Fool. He is the, and correct me if I get this title wrong, lead advisor for Hidden Gems Canada, a Motley Fool service. Am I getting all that right? That's perfect. Okay. And, um, and uh, gave a great pitch on the, the 25 stocks of Christmas yes. on a company called Nelnets that I recommend people taking a look because it was one of our best episodes. So. Definitely. Uh, but 
for the listeners, a little bit of background about yourself, Jim, how did you get to the pool? What's kind of your uh, financial background, if you will? Sure. Um, so I am, uh, I, I come from a family with no financial background whatsoever. My family are not investors. Uh, I can tell you that I had as many conversations with my parents about investing over the years as I did with my dog. Um, it just wasn't the radar. Uh, my father, uh, uh, my mother was a school teacher. My father uh, was uh, uh, an accountant slash sales marketing slash uh, jack of all trades for a company for 42 years. Um, extraordinarily hard worker, my dad. But, you know, financial stuff was just was non-existent. Um, and so I, uh, I actually have a couple of engineering degrees. <laughs> uh, I went as I, I, I have a undergraduate in uh, civil engineering, a, a master's degree in environmental engineering. Uh, I worked industry, uh, basically industrial process redesign, uh, for about a decade after I graduated. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of, you know, in my engineering career, I started, uh, you know, once you start getting established and you start making more money than, you know, you need to pay your rent and your food. Uh, it's like, oh, I should start putting something away and I should, you know, maybe learn a little bit about investing or whatever. Uh, and the company I worked for at the time had kind of a savings and investment plan where, you know, you'd put aside, I don't know, 6% of your salary and they'd match it with four and a half percent. And, you know, engineers tend to be fairly decent at math. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting 75% return on my money on day, day one. That's pretty good. So I'll do that. Um, and so uh, my mom, as I mentioned, was a school teacher. Uh, once I think my parents had paid off their house, they were in their fifties at that point, early fifties. Uh, you know, I think they, they started talking about this whole retirement thing. And my mom expressed an interest in, uh, oh, I'd like to, uh, you know, learn a little bit of this investing stuff. So for Mother's Day one year, I bought her a couple of books that I selected with no knowledge whatsoever. <laughs> I just, I just would be in the mid nineties, I think. And uh, so I just grabbed, I grabbed a couple of books at random to buy her a gift for Mother's Day. And uh, I'm dead serious when I say this, uh, it's a little ironic. One of those books was The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Uh, mm -hmm. She never read it. I went, uh, went back to my, my parents now live about a mile or two from me where I live here in Southern Ontario, but at the time they lived on the other side of Toronto. And so I'd gone home for a weekend, um, see my parents. Uh, I was staying over went out for some friends or whatever. And so, uh, basically when I went to bed that night, I just grabbed a random book to read kind of before bed. I just happened to buy, you know, I, I grabbed the book that I'd bought for my mom, the Motley Fool Investment Guide. Uh, I stole it the next day and took it home. <laughs> uh, I read the book probably, I was probably finished that day. Um, and it quite literally, uh, it quite literally changed the course of my life uh, because I started getting, you know, what that sparked. It, you know, it, look, it's a perfectly good book. You know, I mean, it's been updated. There's a few concepts in it that are now out of date. The Fool no longer uh, really emphasizes. I think probably the best book the Gardner Brothers ever did was probably Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, which came a couple years later. Um, but what the most important thing about that book for me was, is it put me on a path. It put me on a path to you know, reading other things, reading other books, particularly uh, Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street and Beating the Street. Uh, they talked about this Buffett guy who, you know, I looked him up and read his letters and said, wow, like there's something going here. Uh, and so this went on for a couple of years where I was, I basically was investing while in my engineering career. And my, my, uh, my then spouse said to me at one point, 
you need to get new friends because I don't know what you're talking about and neither do any of our friends. Um, and so, you know, around that time I, I started, I started posting on message boards at Molly Fool, um, you know, kind of, you know, this is, I mean, I, I, this was probably around uh, the 97, I think. And, you know, like this was basically like I was, my job was a site, was a, a distraction to, to, um, you know, to my investing career or to my investing hobby, I suppose. Uh, and so, you know, I went through, went through the dot-com experience. Um, I had, uh, I got some things to say about that as well, I guess. Um, but I ended up uh, around that time, I started making plans to, um, at the one company I was working for, I just, you know, I, I, I was a perfectly acceptable engineer. I liked it. I, I liked the work. Uh, a lot of times if you're an environmental engineer and you're working in industry, you, you tend to put yourself out of a job, uh, because, uh, you solve the problems, frankly. Uh, you know, and if you keep them solved then you know, the, the projects that are left, you know, they start to decline in interest because you've solved all the cool things. And, um, you know, so I was at this one company and they were kind of threatening to promote me. Uh, I had a meeting with multiple members of senior management where they said, you know, I was like number one or two on their list of people for re their replacement, you know, kind of succession planning. And so, you know, they kind of, you know, they, they gave you the whole, you know, play your cards right and all this will be yours. And I said, I don't want that. Uh, so I quit instead. Uh, so I walked away from my engineering career. I was, uh, I was uh, 32 years old. Uh, I walked away from my engineering career, did an MBA in finance, uh, timed that exquisitely in that uh, approximately a week after I finalized my, my work in that program, uh, my former spouse gave birth to our first child. Um, and, uh, you know, there were some things that happened there such that I had to stay home for the first year. Um, you know, which was fine. Uh, but, you know, so now I, I'd already been out of the workforce for over a year anyway for the whole MBA thing. Now I'm out of the workforce because of uh, uh, because of uh, complications post-birth. And uh, so I had a lot of time, basically. I had a lot of time. I, I've also done, I, during that time, I also went after, like I've written, I've written and passed all three levels of the CFA. Never bothered to file my paperwork because it doesn't really it's not going to make a difference in my life. Motley Fool is not really, doesn't really care whether I have it or not. Um, but, you know, I've done them and it's fine. But I had a lot of time on my hands in that first year, you know, when the kid was asleep or, or what have you. Uh, so uh, I got real active on the Motley Fool investment boards and, you know, got into a few uh, deep discussions with people you've heard of, Tom Gardner, David Gardner, Bill Mann, um, you know, and so... Uh, this ended up with me coming on with a fool in 2005 as a contract, contract writer, contract guy. And, uh, I haven't left, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've, I've, um, it's funny cause when I actually ended up having an interview with Tom, um, it lasted like five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. And we just shot the breeze and, you know, after, you know, after the fact, Tom, you know, it says, well, we didn't really need, we had like two years of these in-depth 5,000 word investment valuation posts that you'd been sharing. Like we, we knew who you were, we knew how you thought, um, you know, but uh, you know, I've, I've, I've greatly enjoyed working for the Motley Fool. Uh, I've been an analyst or an advisor for multiple services. Um, my career has tended to go into some strange areas. Uh, I am quite possibly the world's worst growth investor at, uh, I don't think I might be embellishing that a little bit, but uh, growth is not my focus. 
which is which is of course a very popular subject uh, in in the investing world at this time. Uh, certainly, the Motley Fools, I would suggest, is probably fairly growth oriented. Uh, I've I've always been a special situations, uh, deep value cash flow guy. Uh, I'm also a fair hand with options. I've used options a lot. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, uh, I worked for Tom and Bill on the original Hidden Gems. I was co-advisor on Hidden Gems Pater, which was small cap value investing. Uh, that service uh, shut down during the credit crisis. Uh, I was the front alongside Jeff Fisher for Motley Fool Options for a decade. Uh, I did a stint uh, on special operations, which is a service uh, that the fool used value in special uh, special situations called special ops. Um, you know, I ran Pro Canada for the, the entirety of its existence, uh, and now basically I'm in front of Hidden Gems Canada, which is small cap. And don't tell anyone I have kind of brought that whole pater ethos of little weird stories there forward, uh, as well as I contribute to Stock Advisor Canada, to Dividend Investor Canada. We're a small team up in Canada, uh, but greatly enjoying, greatly enjoying the whole thing. And, and uh, you know, I, I, it's funny because when Tom, when I did that interview with Tom, you know, now 16 plus years ago, I think, um, I'd already accepted a job with, uh, with Deloitte. I was going to go, there was going to be kind of a hybrid engineering slash financial career there. And then Tom, you know, during our chat, he's like, you're going to work for us at some point. It might as well be now. And I said, okay. So I, I quit Deloitte three days before I officially started uh, and uh, took less money initially to, to go be a fool. And it is uh, without, without question, the best decision I've ever made in my life. So, uh, you know, like I said, I've been there about 16 years now and uh, having a ball every day to this day. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a fascinating career path. And yeah, you've been at, you know, the Molly Fool for you're uh, I almost call you a Molly Fool veteran now, but the, yeah, yeah, it feels that way. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. But we want to get into your style. So you have uh, what you describe and as a barbell approach, maybe could you explain that quick and how it works for you and why you choose to invest that way? Sure. Uh, so I've got uh, one end of the barbell. We've got, uh, we'll call it, uh, the bedrock. I'm not sure that barbells and bedrock work together, but let's go there. Uh, so that's your bedrock companies, your high quality, uh, ideally cash flowing, well, not ideally, you, you best be cash flowing. Um, you know, companies that the price may or may not fluctuate with the market and that's fine. Um, you know, like, look, in, in a downturn, you know, a 50% market downturn, Berkshire Hathaway is going down. Brookfield Asset Management is going down. Um, th and that's fine. Uh, but they're probably also going to come out of it pretty good. And, you know, in, in, a, in the mythological 50% downturn where, you know, the world is uh, collective gnashing their teeth, uh, that's when you can pick up bedrock companies, as I call them. Um, at fantastic prices. So, you know, like during the credit crisis, you could have bought Starbucks for like $4. You could have bought uh, Home Depot, I think as low as 19. Like just, you know, like who was going to supplant those companies during the worst of it, right? And so even even uh, a year ago, uh, you know, March 2020, when we had this pandemic thing going on, um, you know, you could have bought Brookfield Asset Management for about $32 Canadian, I think. You could have bought uh, uh, Kinder Morgan, you know, uh, a big cash gushing pipeline company. You could have bought that for under $10 a share. Um, 
So, and you were getting nine, 10% dividend on top of what you were buying. Uh, those are not going to be multi-baggers to knock the lights out, but they're going to let you sleep real well at night. And at the other end of the barbell. So, and then you got, you go, you got some things in the middle, you know, like, you know, like I, um, you know, you could say, well, I got a bunch of little positions in the middle, but the other end of the barbell is, um, more speculative bets, but not speculative in terms of, uh, the big growthy growth names of the day. Okay. I have nothing against the growth names of the day. Uh, I do have personal difficulty squaring some of the valuations with, uh, the tools of valuation, you know, your traditional, uh, discounted cash flows and where the cash flows are coming from and coming up with a good cash flow forecast that you can discount. Um, but you know, like a speculative that one, one, which you guys have heard of, you know, like I, I, 2016, I bought a decent little position in some company coming out of Ottawa, Canada, that's, you know, going to revolutionize online shopping. Uh, I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> yeah. Like some, some little Shopify company. So my average cost basis in them's like 47, $48 Canadian. So multiply that by 0.8 if you want the, the current US price. It, it's, it's higher today, right? But it was, you know, but the speculative nature of it was, um, look, this is a company that's trading at 10 times sales. Now, sales are growing like gangbusters and the finite or, or the, the size of the potential runway they have is almost infinite. Like we, we, we've called it Amazon-esque before um, uh, because, you know, how many small and medium-sized businesses can be enabled uh, online? Well, ultimately, probably infinite number. And then even things like, I actually just noticed this this morning, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the Globe and Mail, which is the Canadian uh, national newspaper, um, their website is now powered by Shopify. So if you buy a subscription to the Globe and Mail, it's now powered by Shopify. Well, I know for certain that was not the case a number of years ago. Um, you know, and I had some friends who had started businesses before Shopify even launched, uh, or sorry, before they were public. Um, and I remember talking to my one friend who, who had, uh, who had started a business and, and was using them and they'd had prior, uh, they'd had prior exposure with, um, you know, using contract coders and what have you, uh, for their business. And it's had some horrible, horrible experiences. And so basically, you know, maybe a year after Shopify went live, I was asking him, Hey, how do you, how do you feel about Shopify? And he's like, we, he says, we, we will shut down the business before we leave Shopify. <laughs> And I'm like, well, well, that's a vote of confidence, um, you know, and I say, well, you know, in the very Peter Lynchian move, I tried to say, hey, <laughs> do you own any Shopify? Because maybe you should, because you seem to be a very satisfied customer. Um, but also in, in that other end of the bar barbell, you know, it's a real catch all. It, it's not all gross stuff. I, I, I mean, I own PayPal, I, but I, I own PayPal because of the special situation, right? I. I owned eBay before it spun off PayPal. So right. this is where you kind of your special things land. Um, you know, I own Square, but you know, I bought it for other reasons. Uh, you know, that was like, I could see this being bigger. So that, but it's more of a speculative size, but also down here, you get these, uh, strange businesses that are left for dead, uh, that people, uh, you know, well, uh, or just people aren't interested in looking at them. Uh, call them small caps. Very, very often they're small caps. Uh, I love to find businesses that are, that have characteristics of 
the things that can grow into the big success stories of the day, but they're just too small. Like I think we recommended Acuity Ads Holdings, which I know you guys have talked about with Ian Gray. Um, I think we recommended that when it was about a $50 million Canadian market cap. Mm. I mean, who can buy that, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Contour Brands is another one that I just, I I love the story here. They're the, they're the ones that own, they own uh, Wrangler Jeans brand and they own the Lee brand of jeans. Um, you know, who doesn't want to invest in the third and fourth tier level jeans brands, right? Uh, but, you know, if you actually did the work, there was a spinoff from VF Corp. Uh, they got a pretty steady $300 million per year EBITDA profile year in, year out. They themselves tell you they're no growth, but they can make a little bit from, you know, cost containment and, and, and whatever. And they were paying this big fat dividend during the credit crisis. Big fat dividend goes away. Stock gets shot in the head. Um, you know, the dividends coming back because that's how they're making that. That's what they were telling you that, you know, that's how they're that's how their shareholders are going to get their returns. You buy it at fifteen dollars. Dividend comes back. Cash flow is great. Uh, the stock, I think today is around 50. Um, and you've locked in a 10% dividend yield from the, from the purchase price. Oh, and by the way, they're probably going to get bought out. Uh, cause they're, you know, if the market doesn't, you know, the regular stock market maybe doesn't understand the attraction of a $300 million perpetuity. Uh, trust me, private equity understands the value of a $300 million perpetuity. So once the two-year anniversary of their spinoff from VF Corp goes by, which will probably be, I think it's late May of 2021, uh, it wouldn't shock me if the company was gone within a year or two. Um, you know, so that's, that's I, I hope that answers the question. I mean, I've got a bunch of other stuff I like to do, but like, again, you, you got the bedrock at one end of the barbell. You got a few things in the middle, like, you know, I... I I don't know what you call, um, you know, like I've got, I got some Canadian bank stocks or some Canadian REITs, uh, you know, that's probably falls in the bar barbell stuff. I've got, I've got a little bit of like the, the average stocks in tiny middle, but really it tends to be either the bedrock at one end or the special situations slash strange valuations slash speculative bet at the other end. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's been a pretty decent way to invest. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a unique portfolio. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and how do you? Uh, <laughs> do you I say that. I say that as a, uh, a that. compliment. <laughs> I say that as a compliment. <laughs> okay. Do uh, it's, Jim? It's fine. <laughs> do, do you use options still? Um, I, I, I do. I, I use options. Is it just a positioning thing, or is it like, uh, like, I mean, have you basically? Do you do it as a uh, as a replacement to just buying the stock outright? Well, I think as a lot of like maybe listeners look at options and say, "All right, that's gambling." But how how do you look at it, guys? We could have a four hour show on options. Um, the the quick answer is yeah. I, like I said, I I did I was in front of uh, uh, the Motley Fool Options Service for a decade from two thousand nine to twenty nineteen. Um, uh, what Jeff Fisher and I did, and it was, it was a real, I mean, Jeff Fisher, I, I think you've met guys have met him. Jeff Fisher is just, you know, if, if you had a, a, a list of people who are the nicest, most friendliest, smartest, best people to work with, um, wow, Jeff Fisher. I mean, I think Jeff Fisher is holding the door to let you in, you know, cause he's, he's absolutely fantastic and he's a fantastic investor. He's 
just an overall great human. Uh, so that was just an utter privilege to work with him for 10 years. And, and, and we just really synced up on that product. And, and the, what we synced up on was the notion that, look, options are tools. That's it. Okay. We are investors. So you should be spending 95, 98% of your time on getting your investment thesis right, understanding the business business, understanding the cash flows, understanding the opportunities that we're not talking about options at all, right? For the entire time. And once you think you're in a position where you are in a, where you, where you think, you know, what's going on and you've got a, an appreciation for the value of the company. Notice I haven't said over or undervalued. I've just the appreciation and you, you, you understand your investment thesis, then you can bring those tools forward to express that investment thesis. So in a lot of, uh, and, and look, options, um, they can be gambling. Certainly the way that they've been used in the past year or so with the GameStop saga, uh, you know, where people are buying out of the money, the so-called gamma squeeze, people buying the so-called, or the out of the money call options to, you know, force the market makers to buy more shares, to be, to keep Delta hedged. Uh, I know Tesla, that's, one of the things probably that lay behind Tesla's meteoric meteoric run of late 19 and 2020. Um, they, they can be used for ill, but you know, and, 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 and that's cool. And, and maybe, maybe you'll strike it rich on your game because someone wins the lottery, right? Every week, someone wins the lottery, even though, you know, it's uh, it's probably not going to be you. Uh, but, uh, and God bless those people if they, if they get lucky and I, I never begrudge anyone making a dime anywhere, but the way I use options is I need to understand the underlying company. And when I understand the underlying company, then I can use options to express a thesis. Uh, and also options, you know, they, they get a, they get a run of being, um, difficult or, uh, or, or too hard to use. Um, and, and, and my stance has always been, they can be, you can overcomplicate things. Uh, I'm not a big fan of buying options standalone. Um, that's usually a good way you'll, you'll, what usually happens is you'll buy a call option, which of course, uh, appreciates you, you make money if the stock goes up, underlying stock goes up. Uh, what'll usually happen is, uh, you know, any gains you make will be already, you know, will be lost because you paid for the option in the first place. And, uh, you know, and if the stock doesn't move up for you and your option, you have to sell at a loss, it'll probably move after you sell the option. Um, it's just, it's not a, you know, I, I, I tend to focus my, my strategies in, in a couple of ways. Um, one is an income strategy. So it's put writing, but put writing done well. Um, you know, uh, the biggest problems I've seen with put writing are when people over lever themselves. Uh, you know, so if you can afford, 200 shares, you sell two puts, you don't sell 20 um, because one put contract is hundred shares. Right. Um, you know, so, uh, but it, you'd be surprised like the, the I've, I've never seen anyone get in trouble in their portfolio. doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I've never seen anyone get in trouble with their portfolio uh, with um, uh, iron condors or some of the crazy, um, some of the crazier, uh, strategies you can put in place doesn't mean you can't but they they tend to be more difficult and people tend to use them uh smaller because they are you know they, they're more attuned to the risk uh but put writing is the number one thing i've seen people blow themselves up with um 
because they just they they sell too many. Uh, but I do a lot of put writing. Uh, I, I have very rigid uh, controls over my own portfolio. Uh, I like to think I got pretty decent discipline, um, you know. And, and I have rules for myself where I uh, reduce exposure from certain times or at certain times. Um, I've had to do it exactly once in my career, uh, my own self-imposed rule. But you know, uh, and that was fine. Um, but you know, as I've gotten older, my my options fit into the income, which is put writing and or covered call writing, uh, and or or I like to do uh, I like to do a lot of synthetic longs, um, which is probably my favorite option strategy. I do some spreads as well uh, in very you know, bullish and bearish, uh, but uh, my favorite probably my favorite strategy is the synthetic long. Uh, which is you you sell a long dated put option, you take the money from that, and you go buy a, a long dated call option with the same strike and expiration. Um, if you if you pull out your Microsoft Excel, uh, you will see that this uh, gives you the payoff uh, of owning the underlying stock without the pesky need to actually own the underlying stock. Uh, so you, as you can imagine, this is a really great strategy when the stock goes up. It is a significantly less great strategy when the stock goes down. So uh, in the spirit of Will Rogers, don't buy one that goes down or don't set one of these <laughs> up on one that goes down. Um, but that goes back to what are you investing in? And so what is the situation that you're coming to? Um, you know, and, and we can explore that if you want. But, you know, the uh, synthetic long, if you were to approach, uh, I'm just going to pick on Shopify because, again, it's one that I own and know and um if you were to come to Shopify with a synthetic long in the last couple of years, it's probably worked out for you, but it probably would have been an absolutely just terrifying ride. Um, right. And some of them won't work for you. Like if you, if you were, if you slapped a sin long on Shopify at 1400 us dollars, which I think it's gotten up as, I mean, you are sitting here probably, you know, kind of worried about at this point when the stock's closer to 1100 you're, you're probably worried and as well too because be, i don't like high price stocks for for the strategy um because you know 100 shares in, a, in an option you know this shopify at 1100 bucks that's you know what you know 110 grand per contract for synthetic long yeah that's great and all on the way up but it's less great in the way down um, so, you know, I, I, I'm very rigid about controlling the, the exposure of my portfolio. Uh, but I also don't think, you know, like, look, you, the, the things you want to use for this particular strategy are not companies like Shopify or Snowflake or Palantir. Pick any, pick any of your growth favorites. Just buy those and, and hold them. Just, you know. Uh, but, you know, Intel, when they change their CEO, boy, that looks like a nice one. Uh, Philip Morris at Generational Lowe's, or it's not Philip Morris now, Altria at Generational Lowe's, boy, that's a good one. eBay, when they're eating themselves. Apple, when they're eating themselves, boy, those are good ones to, to goose with a synthetic lawn. So, um, yeah, I hope, I think that answers the question. As no, we I, use, I think we got to bring you as back. That's whether I use options, right? Yeah, bring me back. We got to bring you back. <laughs> it's fine. We, uh, and do like a whole show on options because I think we're understanding it a bit, but a lot of people really <laughs> just like, it's like uh, it's like a whole new language. Uh, but I think it, it, it really is. It's easier to look yeah, at. It really is. And, and if I can throw a cheap promotion out there, uh, I'm, I'm no longer involved with Motley Fool options. 
I say that I'm not making recommendations there. Uh, the gentleman who took over for me is 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 um, Jim Mueller. Uh, the service is is a little smaller than when Jeff and I were there, but it's still Jim is doing great work. Uh, Jim and I talk daily about options among other things, uh, but we talk daily. We're good friends. Uh, we were friends before we both worked for the Motley Fool, which has always been funny to me. Um, but uh, he's doing good work and we do talk about options all the time. And if people are looking for, I know this is shameless promotion. I'm so sorry. Um, if they're looking for an, for an education and options, they're willing to put in the work. There are worse things you can subscribe to than Motley Fool options. And I'll leave it at that. Right. Um, so yeah, but I'd, I'd be happy. To, I lo- I've, you can probably tell I love talking options. So yeah, no, no, it's a fascinating topic, but you mentioned growth stocks. And I think that could segue to, um, so you, you know, you mentioned before that, you started investing kind of at the start of the dot-com bubble. You were there. Um, do you see any parallels to the market today? I know a lot of people like to make those comparisons, but history isn't going to exactly repeat itself. So these two, yeah, those two environments, yeah. how, how do you think about them? Um, yeah, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, as they say. Um, I was there. Uh, I was I was the idiot. I, it's funny. It's funny. I, I had friends, I had one friend who, who during the tech bubble, cause I probably, I think I got my first stock in 96. So yeah, so I, I invested through it. Um, but I was the idiot with, uh, I was the idiot with Canadian bank stocks and steel mills during, during the, the dot-com bubble. Um, that's where most of my money was. Uh, so, you know, I had a friend who, who turned 50 grand into about 450 grand in nine months uh, in, in late 99 and early 2000. And of course, I'm just sitting here going, well, what am I doing, right? <laughs> um, he subsequently turned that 450 grand into about eight grand. So, you know, easy come, easy go, I guess. Uh, but the, the, there's a lot of dross in the, in the 2000 uh, NASDAQ bubble that rightly got blown up, in my opinion. Um, you know, everyone knows eToys and pets.com or I think it's pets.com. Uh, but you know, things like, uh, there was a company called 724 solutions, um, which was an internet company, Canadian company. Uh, people don't remember it cause it's gone. Uh, the largest company in Canada was traded on both the Canadian and NASDAQ, uh, Nortel networks, Nortel network was at one point 35% of the Canadian index. So if you were a passive investor in Canada at the time, uh, I, People don't know I'm Canadian. Uh, um, if you were a passive index investor in Canada at the time, you were unknowingly putting one third of your money into the Shopify of the day, the can't lose growth name of the day. Uh, don't bother looking up Nortel today. It's zero. Uh, it's gone um, for various reasons. And I don't want to conflate Shopify's potential end with Nortel's because they're completely different. Um, but there, there was... Um, there was, there, there's a lot of parallels, but I would say a lot of what we see today, um, there's, and there's dross out there. I'm not going to name companies, but there's dross out there. Um, and those companies will probably end the the way that the dross of the dot-com bubble did. I, I am more concerned about, um, some of the, the great names out there. And I, and I've used Shopify already. So, and I, and you already know I own Shopify. So, you know, I will, I will talk about the risk to my own stuff because rather than going after anybody else, um, you know, the great names of the day back in the dot-com bubble, uh, the Cisco's, the Intel's, uh, the Microsoft, these were world changing 
companies, right? Microsoft, uh, you know, owned, still owns, uh, owned the software, the operating system business, uh, you know, and, and it was, it was what every computer came with. Uh, Intel powered the, the guts of those computers. Uh, Cisco was, was the, the picks and shovels play was going to build out this new thing called the internet. Uh, you couldn't lose with these high quality names. And, uh, the example I always like to use is Cisco. Cisco today is about 40%, four zero below its dot com bubble high. They're about 40% down today, 21 years later. For that period, they've done, I'm going to be roughly, roughly right, precisely wrong. They've done about 200 billion in free cash flow during that, that period. They have spent all of that money, that 200 billion they generated in the service of shareholders through buying back stock. I think they bought back 30, 40% of their shares over that time, um, as well as paying a dividend and raising the dividend on a regular basis. And the stock is still where it is versus its all-time high. Uh, Intel has never recaptured its all-time high of the dot-com craze. Microsoft went sideways for a decade and a half. Um, it is, in fact, possible to overpay for the truly great company. And that is where I would suggest the parallels. Because, you know, look, there's crap companies in every market, and they'll, and they'll have the, the natural outcome of crap companies. Um, but that's what my fear is for today, is that the great companies of this era, um, the great companies of the cloud players and what have you, maybe, and even you know, a bunch of them are down 30, 40, 50% in the past few weeks. So maybe maybe this is, I'm now looking in the rear view already, uh, or from their all-time highs. Uh, but that that's where I worry that uh, maybe some people buying in this market will have will have some regrets um you know and especially when you look at some of the really great uh dominant names you know uh the, the so-called fang stocks um you go, go look at the valuation for facebook or for alphabet or or for amazon or apple they're not they're not bad yeah. so you know that's uh, i'm not talking fang stocks when i talk about uh um uh, the 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 richly valued names of today. I'm talking more in the cloud and the tech and 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 the really recent, like you know, a lot of the recent IPOs. You know, they're I I, I would be DoorDash, worried about Airbnb. them. Oh, don't even get me started on DoorDash, man. <laughs> at one, oh, at, yeah. one, at one point, I, oh sorry, I just I just DoorDash at one point, they, them and FedEx were valued at roughly the same market cap, and I'm like, this makes complete sense because. One of them is a global logistics company that can get you anything, anywhere, anytime. And the other one is a guy in a 96 Honda Civic you know, delivering cold food to your house. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, well, the thing, I is think. Is that the, too cynical? <laughs> the, no, the, no, it's not. <laughs> the, uh, the interesting difference between now, where we weren't there, uh, you know, we were just kids, but in 2000, it seemed like all large cap was at least whether it wasn't as extended as the NASDAQ, but all large cap was, a uh, you know, one of the most overvalued in history. Now everything got a giant haircut heading into Oh one Oh two. This scenario, if these companies, I'm not saying you can predict the future, but if they get a 50% haircut and the other stocks do fine, it's, it's almost like, all right, well, if you had all your eggs in that basket and you, Say you have a long-term time horizon. Are you ready to 
underperformed for five years, knowing that you're holding some of these things. Now, maybe some people are, but that's kind of the concern now. How we look at it now. If you're, you can say you're a long term investor until yeah. you're trailing for price changes sentiment. What a, yeah. nothing changes sentiment like price. So is that mm-hmm. kind of how you see it? like the large caps? Not the speculative names aren't as there's a big difference there between now and 2000. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. And also, look, I mean, interest rates, I mean, I hate to be the macro guy, because uh, I'll be wrong. Um, interest rates at the time, you know, you know, when when the market started falling, the whole concept of, you know, interest rates and asset prices are inversely related, um, you know, kind of the central axiom of finance, I suppose. Um, you know, this 10-year bond was six and a half percent, I think, ballpark at that time. So, you know, the market had time to prop things up or the Fed had time to prop things up. Uh, they, that, that's, that's a weapon that's largely gone for obvious reasons. Um, and, and so, but that also, the whole concept of, of, of inversely related uh, interest rates or discount rates and evaluations, um, you know, it, just to return to a, a more normal interest rate, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think that's definitely benefited some of the more speculative names in, in the last year, year and a half. Uh, and, and I don't think even if rates just slowly inch up, I think this is going to be a lot of people hitting the sell button. But again, I mentioned a lot of the big the big names, the big tech, um, you know, the fang stocks. Um, I think they'd be fine. Yeah, like I, I, I'm not worried about that. Uh, but you saw a lot of I mean, even like Coca-Cola. I mean, yeah. Buffett has said, you know, like he he blew Coca-Cola out the door or he should have blown Coca-Cola out the door in 98 or whatever it was. Yeah. 80 times uh, earnings or something. Yeah, that was probably your signal, but Warren, you know, like now I, I, I understand, look, you're not going to throw, not going to throw shade on Buffett's holding Coke through that one. You know, the, the guy gets basically his cost basis back every year and a half via dividends and the dividends aren't taxed because it's all within the Berkshire structure. And, you know, he's got a massive tax bill if he sells his shares and, and Warren's a collector, right? Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, look, I, I uh, in a lot of cases, he's a collector, not always. So how are those airline stocks doing? Um, but I, I just, I am a, a fan of, I mean, I'll say something that maybe a lot of people kind of go, what the hell are you talking about? Um, I am a fan of investing as if the market and the macro story doesn't exist. So we've had a few days here of the NASDAQ going down. Uh, a lot of growth investors are kind of, you know, either taking their stance and going, oh, we will hold, or uh, some people have gotten scared, as you can tell from outflows and various ETFs. Um, I'm a fan of just like, you know, hey, what, what's the, I, I'm going to quote Buffett again, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, what are you a fan of if the market closes for five years? Are you okay uh, owning what you own if you couldn't get out for the next five years? Uh, maybe sounds a little weird for a guy who plays with options, which of course are, um, notoriously short-term vehicles. Uh, but it's once, once you know and own a story, I think you can hold it. And, you know, as long as you know what you're, as long as you know what you own and what it's worth and why, um, I, I think the broader story or the broader market story and the broader market trend kind of, and should fade into the background. Um, you know, and so it's like, okay, well, I mentioned, I own, I own PayPal to pick a name. Um, I've owned it for a long time, literally since the day it was born. Um, it's gone up and down a lot, man. Like 
you know, and it's like, okay, well, I think my thesis is, you know, X, Y, and Z, and the, you know, the, uh, sorry, X, Y, and Z. Um, and the, the transition to the cashless economy and uh, the war on cash, as my colleague uh, Jason Moser likes to call it, um, you know, it's one of the four horsemen of the war on cash. And, you know, and so do I, I don't get, I don't get terribly upset when it's down 20, 30, 40%. I don't get terribly excited when it's up 20, 30, 40%. Uh, I'm not sure I can say that about all of the stocks that are kind of hanging around out there that have received rich multiples. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I think it, you're not 20 or 30% smarter because the stock went up 20 or 30%. No, in my case, it's quite the opposite usually. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no, I like, uh, if you're, if your portfolio went up a hundred percent, that means that either you're investing in companies that are compounding their intrinsic value at just insanely high rates in the average market or the risk in your portfolio is higher now. So you have to really understand. That. Yeah. I, I, I've got a, I think I've got a decent example of that. And again, I'm, I'm referring back to the formerly, have, have you guys ever heard of Nortel networks? No, we're you, too. We're, we've I'm, talked about it before you and I, but I, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so Nortel, I, I, again, I mentioned it, you know, and, and people can draw parallels to certain names in the market today if they want. Um, but like Nortel Networks in from about 92, it, it was spun out of uh, you know, basically Bell Canada Enterprises, the, the, the phone company up here. And, and so it was spun out, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. And from about 92 through 98, you know, it routinely traded between one and a half and two times sales. You know, ballpark. It was, but, you know, sales quadrupled over that period. You know, so I think it was a five or a six bagger over that period. Uh, but it could be because the valuation never got a little, you know, the valuation followed the stock, uh, to, to quote Peter Lynch. Um, in 99, the valuation, the price to sales ratio on, on Nortel went roughly from about two times sales to 10 times sales. And they roughly doubled their sales. So that's a 10 bagger in a year ballpark, right? Yeah. But for the next guy, the next guy coming along in 2000 to get the, a similar return, that price multiple has got to go, you know, it fi- the, the, the valuation multiple, you know, roughly 5x in a year. Uh, and I, I'm sure someone's going to pedantically check all these numbers. But, you know, look, I'm roughly right. I'm not precisely right. Um, but for the next guy coming along, He's got to see the price to sales ratio go from 50, from 10 to 50, right? That they've still got to double their sales and you've got to have the valuation ratio 5x again. And that's a harder, it, it, not that it can't happen, but that's a harder thing to see happen and to make happen for anyone and for any company. Uh, and of course, the, the market valuation is completely outside of your thing. So, so I, I look at a number of these high growth companies that we see and, and I just like, you know, I'm, I'm glad you like the company. I, and I own some high value companies as well because uh, overvalued and high valued are two different things. Um, but just be aware and just be aware and be aware of, of why you own something and be prepared for that 30, 40, 50% drop. And everyone, of course, thinks they're prepared for the 30, 40, 50% drop when the stock's going up 20% a month. Um, just, just be prepared. Yeah, it'll test you. <laughs> like, it, 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 
we could go on forever about this, mm-hmm. but uh, let's let's talk sin stocks. Uh, sure. Less than some of the names we've been talking about, but um, I guess my first question is just sin stocks generally. Why do you think they get such a cheap multiple? Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know if you have any performance numbers or anything on like that, but it's. I, I don't have any explicit performance numbers. I know that um, I, I am a fan of. Uh, fan sounds bad. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, the the concept of sin stocks it kind of goes back to um, your sin might be what you perceive as sin. Uh, is quite possibly perfectly fine by me. What I perceive as sin is is quite possibly perceived by as fine by you. Um, and so the whole concept of sin stocks to me is is largely um, it, it it's subjective morality, not objective morality. Um, and so, for example, uh, tobacco, just to you know, pick the ultimate sin, sin area. Or, you know, I, I tweeted out I don't know, a month ago or something like that saying basically, look, you know, I'm, I, I'm long tobacco, debt collectors, student loans, strip joints, subprime finance, uh, and plastic packaging. Am I the bad guy? Um, because I think, you know, you, you could have an argument. You guys mentioned Nelnet earlier. Uh, Nelnet student loans, you know, well, when I first found Nelnet and started digging into it and asking people around the fool, have you heard of, of Nelnet? Like literally every single person's reaction was, oh, Nelnet, they had my student loan. I hate those guys. Like everybody, yeah. you know, has a very negative impression of, or they all have that negative impression there. Uh, tobacco, you know, tobacco is, uh, you know, it, it, it will, it will kill you. Okay. I, I have, I have family members who have died from tobacco. Um, I point out again, it's going to get me in trouble. Um, I will point out that, you know, no one should be engaged in, in tobacco products. If you got rid of tobacco products tomorrow, uh, I would not complain one little bit, but the fact of the matter is the government's more than happy to take a not small amount of tax revenue off of, um, off of sales of tobacco products. They, you know, and it's highly regulated and it's highly regulated. And because of the perception, it gets that sin, um, you know, multiple as we want to call it but the thing is they also have no advertising expense to speak of uh they they have no r&d expense to speak of really it's beautiful um, well i mean yeah that's just it and so i i've i've wrote an essay 10 or 11 years ago because i i had the temerity in motley fool options to make a recommendation a bullish recommendation on monsanto you guys you guys you guys familiar with monsanto uh, yeah they get a lot of hate they get a lot of hate. Um, and I had the, t- and I, and I said to one of my analysts at the time, I said, what's the over under on how quick someone on the message board says these guys are evil. And he just like, yeah, go away. You know, you're, he's fine. Uh, and I said, no, I'm serious. And I think the wreck came out at, I, I said, I'll, I'll give you an hour. I think the wreck came out at like noon and by like 1246, the first, part, how dare you recommend this? I'm like, okay, well, Look, it, it is not my, first of all, uh, maybe I take a fairly libertarian approach to this, um, but look, you are not terribly interested in my ethical and moral positions, probably. We could have a conversation over beers, and, but, you know, 
I, it's not my job to tell you how to think. Um, that is greatly overstepping my bounds. And, uh, you know, uh, for, for a guy recommending stocks or recommending option transactions that will make, uh, ideally make a profit, uh, you care about one thing, in my opinion. You care that I've understood the company that I'm making the recommendation on and maybe, and then by extension, if it's an option thing, I care about, you know, you care that I know how to use the options to implement the investment thesis. Um, that's it. You don't care about my politics. You don't care about my opinions on uh, um, regardless. I mean, you pick the issue of the day. Uh, I suppose we could bundle it all up to politics. Uh, you know, my job is to say, here's an opportunity where I think we, you and I can make money. That's it. Uh, I might, I might be liberal. I might be conservative. I might, I might be communist. I might be pick, pick, pick your poison. I might be all of those things and more, but my job, my, my responsibility to you is to find a money making opportunity. Yeah. And, the other, I, and as you said, when we talk a little bit about the financial picture that, that, that they, they, they present, they're beautiful. Yeah. Right. I'd also add, uh, like Sorry, go ahead. The, I don't know, like being an investor doesn't make you an advocate for the product. Like, I think the ethics is what you Absolutely do. Absolutely not. The money you generate from the investment, that's where the ethics yeah. should be, like, that's where the ethical dilemma is. Like, first, yeah, it's the difference between first party and third party for sure. I think Colin Roche has probably the, he just, I mean, he's not like a, I have a lot of people know who he is, but he has like a the best piece that kind of summarizes why you should be thinking. Like it's kind of weird to think that way um, because it is tough. At first, you're like, no, why would I invest in that? Because I don't want to support that. But if they don't need a ton of money from you to you know use your stock as collateral to raise money or do another stock offering, it doesn't matter when, to yeah. them if you if you're well, holding it, that. When's when's the last time Ultra you're in offering? You know, like they, they're not raising additional. Well, I, that's just it. Like we, we are, we are dealing in the third party market and, and, and to go back to that Monsanto example for a minute. Um, and I, I hope I'm still coming through here. My computer's giving me that, uh, you know, your internet connection unstable message a couple of times. So hopefully this comes through. Yeah, um, so we're getting that. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, but like Monsanto, so, so here's the thing, right? So Monsanto, uh, you know, Gets a lot of hate, as you said. Um, some of it justified. Some, I would argue, unjustified. I believe they also do uh, some good with their products, frankly. Um, but you are not giving your money to Monsanto. In fact, because it was an options transaction, you know, you don't even get the dividends that Monsanto was paying. So you're not even getting any tainted money into your account. What you got from this, it was a it was a bullish recommendation. So uh, I believe the stock price will go up and this strategy will make you money via this means. Um, you are making a third party bet with another options investor, the market maker, uh, but you're you're making a third party bet. You know, Monsanto is completely it. It'd be like, you know, we're, we're going to bet on the outcome of the Toronto Blue Jays versus the Los Angeles Dodgers in a baseball game, right? Uh, we're going to bet 20 bucks. I'm going to take Toronto. You're going to take LA. Um, when the game is over and the money changes hands, regardless of who won, the LA Dodgers and the Toronto Blue Jays are completely ignorant of our existence. They don't care. Yeah. They're not involved. Um, so, you know, when you say, well, I don't want to support something, 
Well, you're not. That's just yeah. it. In fact, if it if it is a if they are a dividend payer and you do buy the stock, um, then if anything, they're supporting you. But that's true. But it, but but again, you know, like uh, I, I said at the beginning, you know, uh, you know, in my engineering career, I've got a couple of engineering degrees, right? And it's environmentally focused. Um, you know, so you can probably infer uh, some political aspects of that. Uh, which doesn't match up with owning a lot of what are called sin stocks. But again, I, I, I've, I've always gone by the, the idea that my personal ethics, they're personal. They're not yours. They're not the next guy on the street. Uh, you may or may not agree with them. Uh, and over beers, we can have a chat about any number of subjects. But in my official capacity, as someone who's supposed to be recommending opportunities to make money, uh, I believe that I do you, if you are a member of whatever Motley School service I'm working with, if, if I believe I have a duty to give you the best idea that make money and my personal ethics cannot come into that. Um, I, I, I feel quite strongly about that. You might say I have an ethical opinion about that. Um, and so, you know, if I think that, you know, this company over here will, uh, is the best opportunity, the tobacco company, for example, but then, you know, I, I, ha I, I need to, I believe the ethical choice is to put it in front of you. And if, uh, if you don't like it, that's fine, right? Your ethics are also yours and they're personal. And if you, if you literally sit there and go, I, I can't handle this, uh, that's perfectly fine. The, be the beauty of a Motley Fool service, this could be another stock pick in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, but, but recognize that a lot of people you know, we'll find problems with, you can find problems with practically any company, right? Um, uh, this, this, this company, this company offers subprime financing to, to uh, subprime customers. Well, but they also have taken care of their people and their stakeholders and their community. Uh, this company offers, uh, you know, student loans, but, oh, but wait, they, you know, they let, you know, how many people, you know, afford college. Uh, this company, um, they, you know, they provide tobacco products. Oh, but wait, the, the tobacco products is also, uh, there's some bleed over into the marijuana space, which of course became this, you know, every, everyone hated tobacco, but wanted to go into marijuana. Well, you know, there's some crossover companies there, fools. Uh, sorry, folks, <laughs> force, for, force a habit. Um, you know, and, and you can generally, you know, um, Again, I don't want to pick on any company in particular, but, you know, there are companies that will, will cloak themselves in, um, you know, perceived righteousness where I think the uh, where I think the, the management practices are anything but. Yeah, I think we all got I think we all are on the same. I, I, I'm not saying which ticker um, <laughs> tickers. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we, we were going to talk about a company called RCI Hospitality, you know, if we want to roll into that. Uh, RCA hospitality, as you guys know, is, is, uh, used to be called Rick's cabaret, which is what the RC stands for. Um, Rick's cabaret is a publicly traded strip joint company. Uh, and so you can understand where some people, uh, would take umbrage with that. I can understand it. Uh, I am, you know, I have no, I have no particular ethical concerns about a strip joint. I kind of find them a little sad and pathetic to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, but it's, 
my, my significant other's been trying to drag me to one for a couple of years and I'm like, no, I'm good. Thanks. Um, you know, but you know, she's a, she's a fun girl. Um, but you know, like I understand why people would be upset about that. And so it's okay, fine. You, you don't have to invest in them. But, but if I told you that the, the CEO has been there forever and, you know, basically kind of found religion, so to speak, uh, about capital allocation and that, you know, the CEO of this company, which again is a publicly traded strip joint company, uh, they also have a restaurant concept, which they're building out. And so maybe that becomes the predominant business uh, in a few years and, and, and that'd be great. Um, but the, you know, the CEO at this company, uh, you know, I guess read the book, the outsiders uh, four or five years ago. And That's what I was going to say. Yeah. He, it sounds like he, uh, I don't he, know. he found, he found, he found religion, man. Like he, he, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I've said this before to, to some folks around the office, but I, I think the way that they have outlined their capital allocation strategy, what they will do with their cash flow they generate is probably one of the most comprehensive, coherent, and just plain logical things. I, it, it, like if we aspire to own companies with open and transparent management with with great capital allocation um, ethos and 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 history, uh, you know, how do you square that? Because as an investor, that's what I'm looking for. And oh, but he does so running a company that is a publicly traded strip joint company. Um, so it it's it's an interesting conundrum, I think. And I, and again, I understand completely why some people wouldn't own own that company. Um, but I think that you know if you if you do value things like capital allocation and management who is who has a large meaningful stake in the business and is interested in in his uh, fiduciary duties to to the, the stakeholders and the shareholders, um, you could do a lot worse, man. <laughs> it, just, it makes me think like if you if you invest with like libertarian views and just see it as consenting adults as customers like you've probably done pretty well for yourself as an investor. Yeah. Whether it's RCI hospitality or all chair over the years. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, move into RCI. You mentioned it, I think a little bit, but I think we need to maybe introduce the company uh, more of the background. So yep. the stock has kind of muddled around for two decades. Can you give a little background on what happened there? And then maybe uh, talk about what changed because it's kind of getting a lot more love in the markets as you know, nothing changes sentiment like price, but it's gone had on, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's been on quite a good run. So what changed? Was it just- Yeah, it's, it's gone from about $12 last summer after coming down from a previous high, uh, I think in the 40s. Um, it was about 12 bucks last summer. Uh, I think it's about 60 right now, 60, 65. Hmm. Um, I, I really mean it when I say the CEO got religion. Um, like he, and, and the religion being, you know, capital allocation. Um, he might have another religion for all I know, but um, no, I mean, I, I think that that was really the the moment. Yeah, because you're right. It did muddle around for, for years and look, it's not, again, it's, it's kind of a, it's a business that I kind of think is icky, you know, frankly, uh, the nightclubs, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm too old to go to nightclubs and buy the bottle service and whatever. I'm not interested in, you know, really what they're selling, but I understand that yeah, some people can be, um, but it was really the moment of the cash uh, of the allocation, the capital allocation that really changed and started laying out. Here's what we're going to do with the cash that we generate, because whatever you think of the business, it generates a lot of coin. And then they've also got, as I mentioned, this 
the, this restaurant segment. They call it Bombshells. It's supposedly a military-themed um, restaurant. I will. Is it kind of like a, Is it kind of like Hooters a bit, or a, I'm, I'm, it, it is not. It is not kind of like Hooters. It's basically it. It is to military as Hooters is to owls. Okay. 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 So, you know, it, it's uh, you know. And look, there's no end of restaurants you can go to, but you know, these things are, there, there's not a lot of them. I think there's about 10, they're all in Texas and the major centers, so, you know, Houston, Dallas, Austin. Um, but they're starting to franchise this business and they're gonna do another 10 probably, uh, probably in the next two or three years. They've already got their first franchisees lined up. Uh, so, you know, I, I really like franchise businesses. Um, it's nice when someone else takes the operational risk and you take 6% of their sales. Uh, after selling them a system, that's really nice, um, you know. And 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 Bombshells does, uh, you know, significant alcohol sales, which of course there's uh, some nice uh, some nice margins on that. Um, and and so I think management said they believe they can get to 80 to 100 locations. So so I think we'll see some pretty significant um, expansion opportunities there. Uh, the nightclubs they tend to you know uh, they tend to go in and buy. Uh, if it makes sense, uh, because the, uh, you know, the dirty little secret, no pun intended, uh, with, with a strip joint is, uh, most cities don't really want them around. We'll call it a nightclub or a gentleman's club, I suppose. Um, you know, and so if you, if you have an incumbent club, you might be grandfathered into your location. <laughs> uh, you might have a local government, effective monopoly because they won't grant a new license for a, for a com competitor across the street. Okay. So you kind of have that market to yourself. Um, and if I can diverge for a little bit here, I'm going to steal from uh, my friend, Bill Mann, uh, when he says uh, we were, we were talking about the WWE, you know, the wrestling guys. Uh, we talked WWE a while ago, a couple of weeks ago, I think, um, you know, and in that industry, uh, the CEO, you know, Vince McMahon has basically rolled up the entire business himself. And, and, you know, they, they kind of own North American wrestling now. And the way Bill put it was like, you know, they, they basically took the mountain that no one else wanted uh, and no one else realized they might want. And so I kind of look at that with the nightclub segment here with RCI is that, you know, locally, they kind of got a local granted government enshrined or government ring fenced monopoly in many of their locales. Um, do we like monopoly businesses or not? Like I, I get I that it's not, I mean, I, 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 again, I am, I don't think anyone should own this company or any company if they are uncomfortable with the product. Like I, I really don't. There's, there's plenty of fish in the sea as they say, and you know, you have all kinds of opportunities. Um, but, you know, if you just look strictly at, you know, so they, they've got the bombshell segment, they've got the nightclub segment, uh, both of which are throwing off significant cash. And they've kind of laid out this really, um, this really interesting capital allocation strategy, which is basically like, look, we, we will buy new clubs, but we'll pay three to four times EBITDA. So not overpaying. Uh, they generally prefer to get the seller to finance some of the sales. So you take some seller financing back. They buy the real estate, uh, which is why there's a lot of debt on the balance sheet. It's all mortgage debt backed by real estate. Um, and, and they aim to get, I think, about a 25, 30% uh, cash on cash return. Um, 
you know, and then they use the cash flows from those clubs over time to to pay off uh, uh, to pay off the the debt that is, you know, I think they use about seventy percent of cash flow to pay off the debt that's associated with the new club. Uh, organic growth tends to be in the in the restaurant space, the bombshell stuff. Uh, they pay back, they pay they pay a dividend. They buy back shares uh, provided, and I really like this. They buy back shares if the free cash flow yield is above ten percent. So in other words, if the stock price has been knocked down far enough that the company can have a free cash flow yield of 10%. But they also say, oh, by the way, they're very, and I'm sorry for making this parallel, they're very Buffett-esque. Because Buffett, of course, says, you know, Berkshire's got how many billions of dollars of cash in the balance sheet? But Buffett has said, look, we'll buy back stock, but we're keeping 20, 30 billion dollars, period, on the balance sheet because we will always be a fortress. RCI said the same thing. We'll buy back stock if it's below a 10% free cash flow yield. And as long as we've got $16 million of cash on our balance sheet, you know, it's obviously a lot less than, uh, than, a, than a Berkshire, you know, because it's a considerably different sized company. Um, but, you know, $16, $16 billion on RCI's balance sheet is what's RCI, a $550 billion company? Uh, or sorry, million, not billion, million. Um, you know, it's, uh, I like the way they think. I like the way that they've said we are, we are looking to maximize investor. Um, we're looking to maximize investor uh, returns here um, because, well, because he read that book, I guess. Um, but, right. you know, that's good for, that's, that's good for, um, that's good for shareholders. Now, look, uh, there there were some governance issues, uh, which is what drove the stock down about twelve bucks. Like I said last summer, I think it might have gone below ten. Um, you know, there were there were things uh, uh, there were things that were not uh, disclosed to the SEC's liking uh, in terms of internal controls, uh, as well as I believe there were some related party transactions that you know the the transaction flowed through the financial statements, but they weren't explicitly. Um, explicitly laid out. Uh, we do know that RCI has taken steps to improve that governance, uh, apparently to the SEC's satisfaction. I mean, there's not much more we could say about that in terms of they either have or they haven't, and 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 they claim they have, and the SEC has backed off, so the SEC is satisfied. So uh, there's always a chance that someone's doing something at any company that's not cool, but from what we know, understand now, the SEC, uh, you know, is satisfied with uh, the measures that RCI has taken. Right. The uh, well, I think we're running out of time. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, that pitch was this good. We had a few more questions in RCI, so maybe uh, you know, investors uh, take a look at everything. Uh, but we're going to wrap things up. Sure. Uh, so we got our two final ones. We ask everyone, what is one financial saying that you disagree with, Jim? Oh dear. Financial sayings that I disagree with. Um, I'm going to say that you can't play too high a price for quality because as I mentioned earlier uh, with the examples from the dot-com bubble, Oh yes, you can. Um, You know, I, I'm not, I, I also said that overvalued and highly valued are not the same thing. So you you can pay a high valuation for a great quality business. Um, but sometimes you can pay too much. And so when people tell me, well, you know, I'm a long-term investor and yeah, I probably overpaid, but I'll be happy, um, in the long term. 
Uh, again, I'll point to Cisco if you bought at the high in 2000, Intel if you bought at the high in 99, 2000. Um, it's now over two decades later, you still haven't made your money back. You still holding, you still long-term investor. So uh, that's, that's, I guess, probably the one I disagree with most. Yeah, I think we'd, I think yeah, we'd be same, on the though. same side. Um, last question. I'm, I'm boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a potential career in investing? Uh, <laughs> I got a lot, actually. Um, read widely. Disagree with other people, but don't be disagreeable. Uh, in other words, think different. Think for yourself. Be Because, you know, look, I... Anyone can calculate insert financial ratio you want to talk about here, right? You know, anyone can, you know, calculate all these wonderful growth things or whatever like that. But but think different and and don't be afraid to to go into areas where um, other others are fearing to tread, kind of thing. Like some of the uh, some of the most fun investments I've made, uh, not the greatest like sometimes, but some of the most fun ones because well, like. What about this? This is an interesting idea, you know. I mean, we we were we were excited about uh, uh, as you guys know. Look, I, I I recommended GameStop before GameStop went stupid. Um, you know, now we got out of it too once it did go stupid, and we thanked the market for their money. Um, but you know, at, at five and nine dollars, I think I was I think I put it internally in our database at work at around five bucks, and I recommended it. I think just north of nine. Um, you know, it's like, I get it. This is the next blockbuster. It's going out of business. Um, what if it doesn't? Let's go back and look at what blockbuster was. Does this actually look like what GameStop is today? This is like six, nine months ago. Um, oh, it really doesn't. And here are the reasons why. Uh, so, so my thing is, you know, don't be afraid to, to, to think differently. Don't be afraid to kind of challenge orthodoxy because you can do that without being a jerk. Don't be a jerk. It's never good to be a jerk. Um, but you know, like you know, think for yourself because I think you'll have, I think you'll have more fun in investing. And, and uh, you know, and then I would also say avoid avoid investment banking because <laughs> it'll murder you. Uh, seen those golden sma- golden. You'll make a lot of money, but uh, uh, oh, everybody no. I know who went into. <laughs> Yeah, everyone I know, who, everyone I know who went into investment banking, uh, I don't think any of them lasted two years. They, they just, it, it was so, it was a lot of work. They got well paid, but they, uh, um, they just, they were miserable. And uh, you know, it's uh, life, life is short, as they say, and um, life's too short to be miserable, in my opinion. Okay. All right, I think that's a good way to wrap it up, Brad. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That, that, that's that's the <laughs> that's the coda right there, guys. That's you know. There it is. Perfect. All right. Uh, always fun to talk, Jim. Thank you for joining us. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Thanks again, Jim Gillies, for coming on the show. Next, we're going to hit hot water. Um, I got some good ones. Okay, do we want to do, so we don't spoil each other's, because I know we're trying to change it up, do we want to just go back and forth? So you do one, I do one, you do one, I do one. Sure. 
uh, we can do that. Uh, for me, we work. Uh, they are set to SPAC, uh, but in their uh, one of their public filings, the company stated as follows. The company also exited all of its non-core ventures and mm. streamlined headcount by 67% from its peak in September 2019. What a way to spin layoffs. Yeah, they... Uh, You're streamlined. Uh, we're streamlining. We're non-core assets. We're going to start buying my shares now. They they can't. They're still hemorrhaging money. But yeah, giving up the wave pool company is probably smart. Um, Adam Newman was a crazy man. They can do is. like uh, an apprentice spinoff with Adam Newman saying you streamlined, you know, kind of like Trump. Uh, nah, I don't know. If I, yeah, I don't know if uh, if he's I'm a gone TV. now though. He is gone. He is wild. Sure. I think he'd work. He'd pro- I mean, speaking of that, he'd probably work on TV. I mean, mostly, you know, he's got a big. Uh, he's got a big personality. Did, but did we, you see the HBO uh, preview? They have a documentary for coming him? out. I did not. Scotty G has some words. <laughs> well, you know, with that, he will be uh, fired up. I, I mean, he's never. Uh, he's never bad on TV either, but. The, right. what's 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 your first hot water? Okay, hot first one. Uh, it is the tiger cub from Asia. Uh, his name is Huang, I think. Uh, which we can make we can make some crude jokes, but I'm not. You can think of the jokes yourself. Uh, nobody could have seen this coming. A uh, guy had like 10 billion, maybe I think 20 billion, maybe an AUM as a family office, and was 80 billion in buying power. 80 billion in buying power. Yeah, he he. You really didn't check it with that buying power on Robinhood was actually money. You know, he got confused. I think a lot of people do. When it says buying power, yeah, that's that's really your margin power. But yeah, he was 5x levered using swaps to stay off the books. Totally shocked here. Um, I guess I was trying to understand what swaps were. I'll say I was reading some stuff. Still don't get it, so I'm not going to try to explain it. But basically, the only thing I did get is that the way he used it was, one, he used an investment bank like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And two, it's a way to invest where it basically you're investing in the entity, kind of like an option, but it stays off the books. So no one knew he had these positions. And that's why Viacom and what Discovery and that... Ticker I always see GSX, which seems like kind Farfetch of a fraud. Was, was Farfetch on there? Maybe, yeah. That might have been just some collateral. But the things I talk out of, uh, take out of this is, one, Goldman always wins, as we know. Squiddy, as I think a lot of people on uh, Twitter like to call them. They always win. Two, these are the people the SEC and Congress should be, like, having on hearings. Like, Citadel, uh, I don't know, is... They're just sitting there like, yeah, we'll make these orders for you. But these are the people that are actually... No. Roaring Kitty is doing damage. Yeah, Roaring Kitty is doing major damage. I mean, yeah, the... What's his um, name? Uh, Vlad. Vlad seems a bit over his skis when we, you know, when he talks sometimes. But, I mean, he's not... He, he seems fine. And then Ken Griffin, yeah, he's worth a lot of money, but they provide good value. Like, these are the people that are 5X levered that are, I think... Are the ones that there should be regulations on. Um, and third, really, yeah, it's interesting that he blew up. But I will I, also, I, well, it's interesting, but it's not surprising. And you know, you mentioned Vlad, so that caters into my next hot water. Do you have anything else that you had to say? Uh, I was going to say, does this remind you of the end of Margin Call? Yeah, kinda. And I think there was a Charlie Munger quote that I saw today. There's three. Three L's that can ruin a man. Ladies, liquor, and leverage. And he also and, says, my loss is your gain. Like, uh, sorry. But the, <laughs> if you've listened to Will Emerson on Margin Yeah, Call. that's what I felt like the Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley desk was like. Um, but also, Don't Huang, if you feel the, 
Yeah, if you feel bad for him, I would say don't because he's a big donor to an anti-gay nonprofit. So, yeah, I think I'm kind of happy that he's blowing up. Um, Interesting. Oh, yeah, the only serious question I have is as a long-only person, how do you think about things like this? Oh, I love blow-ups. It's exciting. You know, and the carnage, get get good businesses at cheap, hopefully. Get some limit I mean, order. I don't know about VIAC, but... Yeah, yeah, whatever those businesses. I think GSX, I mean, there's a lot of smart people that think GSX is a fraud. So who knows what will come out of that. But I think it just shows, yeah, limit orders can be smart, you know, get some of those outstanding. Uh, but Robinhood has filed to go public confidentially, but they announced okay. it. They announced that it's confidential. So That's right, that's right. I, ironic, I guess, but... Well, it's like an anonymous donor, uh, but everyone knows... Like, yeah. he, uh, who is it, uh, just some rich person. They, you know, Bill Gates anonymously donated to yeah. blank. Well, it wasn't anonymous anymore. Uh, but, first of all, I think the last thing Robin Hood needs is to be under the public eye any more than they already are. But uh, what would you bet over under on average count size, $20,000? Maybe we'll oh. get a chance to say it in the S1. Yeah, well, if they don't disclose it, I would say, I don't know, pretty low. But if they do disclose it, I would say, yeah, it's got to be below $20,000. Uh, I was re- doing this research. Is average, not median. Yeah, I'd say below 20000 I don't know. It depends if they count like accounts like ours who are just dormant, you know, with no money in them. That kind of would weigh in on it a bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. They have. I'm going to go over. You're going to go over? Leverage. Well, uh, <laughs> it depends how they define things like that. Um it's not a gap number, obviously, so I don't think they have to. But we'll see. Maybe actually, well, they have. You to should be able to. Yeah, the, you'll, the AUM, right? Well, they ha- they don't have to not give you assets, use- but they're not managing the assets, but the assets that are on their books. Yes, yeah, they will have to do that, but some of it might not be customer deposits. I think they probably have to do that, and they also probably will give out user numbers. But again, we don't know how many of those are active. I'm so, looking forward to these beautiful first few pictures on the S1. No, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. Democratizing finance, they're going to show a really diverse group of people talking on their phones, all smiling, super cheerful, and they're going to be like, Robin had helped me become a degenerate gambler. No, uh, but it's pro- apparently going to go out at 50 times sales. So are you in or oh, gosh, no. are you in? I, wouldn't bu- I would never buy this. I I am typically pro sin stocks and I would never buy this. Oh yeah, this I mean the long term, stock. the long term. Yeah, there's a lot of questions long term for the viability of the business. So what do you? Uh, what else do you have? Okay, Carvana. So good blog from Scott Morton. I don't know who that is, but um, yeah, it was a good blog. So if you're listening, thanks uh, for writing it. So it outlines one. There's been a lot of self dealing at the company. So related party transactions are big at Carvana. That's a one red flag. Two, these self-dealings have been, I think, in the nine-figure range. Three, uh, executives have been selling stock daily while the stock's gone up like 1,000% this year. Two, the comp- or four, excuse me, can't count. The company is still hemorrhaging money. They can't stay alive without raising outside capital. And five, the father... Who the company is self-dealing to, I think it's the CEO's father or maybe the founder's father, I'm not exactly sure, is a felon. You can't make this stuff up. There's a, that's a lot of red flags 
Um, but hey, it's been one hell of a per <laughs> hell of a stock. I don't know. I'll give you a bigger red flag. Yeah. Drove past their headquarters it's in Phoenix. Tempe. Yeah, and they, it's a really, really nice building. Red flag. It's too nice. Yeah, it's way too nice for the building. That's what our, too much leasing costs. Too much. Yes, yes. That's what the there was a red flag with that for Yext too, and it's right by ASU's campus, Carvana, right? Yeah, also a red flag. Why would you want to go close to ASU? Because they want their employees to party. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think that's ideal, but I, I don't know. Carvana, uh, I don't know anything. There might be some solid bull cases out there, and obviously the stock's done well. So if, But as just an outsider. Who stocks that have done well that don't deserve it. Yeah, that's true. The Yeah, just as an outsider looking at these, I just would, I don't know how you how you own this thing. Maybe I'm missing the bigger picture, but I just don't see it. Don't check know. our books, bro. Yeah, don't. I don't know. No, uh, everyone's... Uh, everyone you care about accounting or you want to make money? Yeah, people are saying that. People are also saying the Russ Hanneman quote from Silicon Valley. Dude, you don't want to be revenue, you know, or you don't want to make money or else they're going to ask for more profits. Or they're also True. saying... Uh, so never be enough. Yes, the other thing from Silicon Valley that... Again, is a big joke, but people do take it seriously where they're like, dude, we're going to make it up in volume. And I think that's, it's pretty indicative of this whole market. It, uh, honestly, if you could describe it as like a person-esque market right now, I think the most apt description of the pockets of the stock market are, it's a Russ Hanneman market. Yeah. We're just living in it. I think there were some quotes that got way too taken out of context. From More margin is my opportunity. People negative margin is a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, what well, was the negative on take it? That bit. Anytime there's like a low margin business, they're like, "This is dude. great. We're gonna steal the market. We're going low cost on purpose." They're scaling, not dude. just bad unit economics. Yeah, negative margins. It's a moat. But it's a huge <laughs> moat. The uh, then also the you don't just want to. What, what's Munger say? You don't just want a great business at a good price. You want to. Uh, or sorry, you don't want a uh, fine business at a great price. You want a great business at a fair price. Well, now price. we're at a fine business at what? A now people just say like anything's a fair price yeah, by quality. quality. Quality at all costs. Dude, you just don't get it, man. The, uh, How many times? Yeah. Did, but well, we get it for it. Yeah, yeah. They, well, it seems like, yeah, it's good businesses. Some of these businesses are obviously good, but they're at terrible price. It's like good businesses at terrible prices. You know what I mean? And it's, it's just, why willing, would you want to play that game? It's the fair value people are willing to pay. All right, yeah. anyway, um, ARC is in hot water because the ARC Space Exploration ETF, you know too. that one? Yeah, I had this one too. Um, so they own a Chinese company with a product called the Space Pod. Makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the Space Pod is supposed to be a good uh, a food delivery robot, um, and it has nothing to do with outer space. So I think someone may have... Uh, missed on that one yeah just saw the word space pod top, other top holdings you might be i might be stepping on your thunder here other top holdings include netflix and jd.com yeah, it wasn't also, a top holding but yeah netflix was jd.com was a top holding I, netflix wasn't was. jd or netflix wasn't a top holding it, it is a holding uh which, which i guess make they make space shows though so you ever watch lost in space this show's really good what about uh amazon what did they think was that in Amazon there too? owned Blue Origin? I don't, dude. It's that doesn't not, make any sense. Do they own their own 3D printing ETF? You see what this is called? This is called an ETF squared. No, <laughs> uh, that's a bad joke. But 
I did see that. They it's, own their second largest holding is their own ETF. It's uh, look, it's a flywheel effect. Yeah. All right. Whatever. I guess I'm just sexist. It's okay. <laughs> it's not. It's just it, this stuff is just stop. Like I, I have no. Yeah. Whatever. Move on. What's move your on. What's your last one? Okay. Coca Cola Consolidated's bottler. Or sorry, <laughs> sorry. Governance. Coca Cola Consolidated is not Coca Cola. It is Coca Cola's uh, bottler. Now this is from their proxy, I believe. And I quote, the board requires the CEO to use the company's corporate aircraft whenever reasonable for both business and personal travel, which that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting, you know, use of the uh, shareholders, you know, money. <laughs> and uh, as a classic, one of the best falls on Twitter, Jim O'Shaughnessy said, to be fair, the board, quote, requires it. No fighting the powers that be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which, if you saw that on a proxy statement, what would be, what would be your thoughts? I don't know. I feel like a bunch of management management teams do it. Well, yeah, but they don't specifically outline that they require it for personal travel. I guess that's true. <laughs> well, you know that bottler could be. He might not be a safe in first class. Yeah, that's point. true. Yeah, uh, that's that's bad. But yeah, that's all my hot waters. If we want to move on to buy, so hold. I got one more. Tesla. Okay. Uh, Tesla. Or Bitcoin hodlers, hold on for dear life if you don't know what hodl means. Uh, I guess they're now some synonymous with each other, but uh, you can officially buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. I'm sure a lot of people saw that. Here's the catch. If you request a refund, you can choose, they can choose to yeah. pay, pay you back in Bitcoin or dollars depending on what happens to the price of Bitcoin. So let's say you pay for a car with whatever, a half of Bitcoin, whatever it is, and it drops 50%. They can pay you back that Bitcoin at um, a 50% decline. If you ask, yeah, for a refund, yeah. yeah. Heads I win, tails you lose. Yo, well, we, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the same page with you there. But as well, I mean, you know, what's fascinating to me is that this currency, I don't know, I've never paid capital gains tax on a currency before, which is quite fascinating if you make a purchase in Bitcoin, you're gonna have to pay uh, capital gains. Didn't know uh, if you sell. If well, you had never it. sell. Well, uh, I I mean, if you ha if you buy a Tesla, then oh, you, yes, you, you have, have to, to sell. sell. Right. I mean, I don't know. I didn't know what trans transactional currency forces or or whatever government body has you pay capital gains on. I I, I was. Unaware of this, uh, but I also—I I honestly think you would—you're going to look into it, like not you specifically, but people are going to look into it too. I have fair confidence that when they're buying in Bitcoin, they buy in Bitcoin, convert it to dollars, buy the Tesla with dollars, the the car, and then it's honestly, pay you back, give you the Tesla. They're—they're they're just converting it. It's like uh, Russell Okun when he got paid in Bitcoin, quote unquote. It is. Uh... I mean, it's brilliant, brilliant on Tesla's part. This might be the highest margin part of their business, other than yeah, true, price. true, yeah. Because <laughs> they win no matter what. If people decide to pay them in Bitcoin, they win. Um, that's anyway, true. That's true. Yeah, as long as there's a refund. The buy sell hold. The theme this week is ways to go public. So it's not stocks. Uh, the three direct listing, IPO or SPAC. Which one are you buying? Mm, IPO hold? and well, okay, direct listing if and only if. The company didn't do around 50% below two months earlier, like Roblox or a bunch of other companies, which just makes it 
that same conundrum of the insiders get in early, or not the insiders, the big banks get in early. So I'll go direct listing first, and then I'll go IPO, and then SPAC uh, about 80 rungs down because if everyone knows this by now, but the SPACs, the warrants, the dilution, all that stuff, it's just not, I don't know. It's you just not, also, you're, you're buying money at it. You're buying cash. You can also masquerade a lot of parts of the business. Oh, yeah. Well, what's weird is, you know, what's a fascinating thing is that all these SPACs, coincidentally, are projecting that revenue is going to double by 2024. Who would have thought? All these businesses are going to grow at way faster than GDP. And management thinks it's a high likelihood. It's crazy. And, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, SPACs are, they're at the bottom of the list there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What do, you, what do you, do you have any thoughts on direct listings? No, IPO done well. It's great. But oh, direct right. listing, I would say the stocks that I like the best, the companies that I like the best, have chosen to go direct listing. Directly. What, are, what are those two? I mean, it's a small Spotify. sample size. Small, yes. Roblox and Spotify, right? Those are the two. Yeah, I like those management teams. That's, I mean, there's you like that's companies right. that IPO'd. Yeah, that's true. All right, mm-hmm. anecdotal evidence. Uh, you want to go first? I can. I can. Uh, I watched the keynote uh, from Intel's new CEO. He's only been there for like a month. I had it in the background, and it's an industry It's a bit... You know, I don't understand the industry that well, but when I watched it, and it's a good watch. He's got a lot of energy. I think Intel trading at like it was at ten times free cash flow, or whatever it was the last two years. That we might look back on that and think that was a huge mistake because they got a lot of things going for them right now. Yeah, they're a little behind like Taiwan Semiconductor, but this guy has energy, which whatever. <laughs> I think it's good. You got to have a leader if you're trying to transition out of a stagnating period. Um, They're telling a great story, and it looks like they have a roadmap to eventually become the Taiwan Semiconductor of the Western world, and it seems like they got the government backing them. There's a ton of Western companies that want to back them, and there's not really anyone that's going to be able to compete with them on this scale, so it seems like, and again, this is an industry I don't know well, they have a huge advantage. So we'll see. But yeah, it seems like a lot of smart people that I follow that uh, know the semi space well are all kind of bullish on Intel. Yeah. It did have quite the recovery though, right? Yeah, I mean, it's trading at like, I don't know, 15 times free cash flow right now. I could be wrong, but it, it's a little higher now. It's still under the market multiple, and it isn't, it's a, definitely a large cap. I think the market cap's at like $250 billion. But. Yeah, a lot of smart people thought it was a great risk-reward opportunity. They do have to execute, and it's going to be tough to tell unless you're an industry expert whether they are executing, but it seems like the government has almost said, yeah, you're too big to fail. You're almost like a defense contractor where we need the semi-production in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of margin of safety there. And Dan Loeb. (laughs) Yeah, even though he told him to outsource the foundry thing uh so he went he his ideas they did the exact opposite except you know firing the ceo well they fired the ceo but they he brought uh, in his, he brought in the new guy didn't he i don't know if he did i mean they own like one percent of intel but his ideas or third points ideas intel didn't follow any of them so which is you know but i mean you know the activist i guess did their job and the new guy here seems Really, uh, he seems strong. So I don't know. Feel right. you know. 
Uh, are we alternating or you want to? Yeah, that's all. That's all okay. My, uh, I'm in a new apartment and you know, usually when you go into a new apartment, you buy things on Amazon. I didn't buy anything on Amazon. In fact, went, uh, went <laughs> physical retailers, Target, Target, Target yeah. A little I, Fred Meyer who's owned by Kroger. So I think revival <laughs> of, revival of the physical retailers. Yeah. It's back. Amazon's dead in the water. Well, look, yeah, good, good anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence on my part, I've been using Amazon a lot so well so this the stock will probably clearly stagnate. clearly yeah it's clearly it's a good investment or clearly in your case but i don't know no i mean i don't know amazon's experience isn't as good as it used to be but Target. we all know that so. yeah i think there is something to be said for targets convenience and prices actually being really competitive yeah amazon's usually the low low price point but uh i don't know target yeah. with the furniture and i also well, Amazon's furniture is a lot more convenient because they just throw it on my front door. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about ordering furniture that I haven't actually tried out. I'll, I, I'm comfortable. I was comfortable. But it I thought you said fine. your futon sucked. No, oh, I got that at Target. I'm, I got some stuff oh, at shoot. Amazon. I got my bed at Amazon. It worked really well. All right. Well, uh, what do you have for your second one? Second one? I was going to say Robinhood IPO. Um, and I was going to say WeWork SPAC, uh, that was going to be mine, but you talked about that under the hot water. Uh, the only other thing I had was a theory with this. Uh, it's not necessarily an investable theory, more of kind of this could happen where all this stuff, the, the SPACs, the, you know, the IPO is going up 100% a day, the stuff... I believe is going to all fizzle out once a individuals get bored, which it looks like that is already happening with the call option volumes declining. B, these lockups expiring on SPACs over the next few months. I think that's just that's a good formula for kind of you know this stuff fizzling out. It doesn't have to crash necessarily, but just kind of you know this uh, what do they call it the the hot market it's not necessarily a bubble or anything you know like all that stuff is just it can't go on forever it's not a self it's not a perpetual motion machine where yeah, I don't people think are going to be one time though I think yeah it's just over the next few months as the lockups kind of come in there's some things that I mean the, the irrational things are already crashing Virgin Galactic's down 52% or whatever Clover's down still got you know there's a lot more out there, and 50% can it can fall 50% two more times. There, there are still definitely pockets of irrationality, but I would say at large, some of the really really irrational things have already fizzled out. Don't you think? Nah, eh, yeah, like, I don't know. Things can fall a lot farther. Tesla's still a 600 billion dollar company. Yeah, I mean that's obviously the <laughs> that's the elephant in the room. Yeah. I don't know. Well, all I know is that hopefully some quality companies get a haircut if, and it's not a guarantee, if the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. That's kind of how, like if you're an individual, it seems like it's the way to, to play it. But don't just buy the dip willy-nilly. Oh, it fell 5%. Generational buying opportunity. Oh, my God, it fell 10%. Well, it was there like three weeks ago on the way up. So don't don't anchor to the high price. But uh there, yeah, I think force liquidation and stuff like that can be can you know there can be opportunities. I think yeah, just referencing that 
all-time highs and saying how far down is it, it's probably not the good way to go. Just no, pay attention to the no. I mean, yeah, you got to take into account valuation and it, whether the business is good. Don't just buy the dip willy-nilly. Just because someone goes falls 90% or 60% or whatever doesn't mean, I don't know, anchoring can be a powerful tool and your mind can war- uh, get warped into that. All right. Uh, my second one is kind of a few different anecdotals, but... Uh, at my apartment, at my new apartment, there's this construction site going on across the street every morning at like 5.45, and it makes me happy that I'm not working construction. These people get out in the cold, and they're out there working, and it made me think. Infrastructure bill, Procore, Autodesk, Trimble, these are all companies I would want to own if this infrastructure bill is real. Secondly, isn't that like the one area of spending that everyone actually is like, yeah, please, I think That's so, yeah. The only time I've seen a, um, oh, what you call it, uh, not feedback, negative feedback on the infrastructure bill was Pomp, the Bitcoin guy. Um, but he prices the S&P returns in gold, which it, when he said that, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal. I don't know. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, he, yeah, he doesn't like it because he thinks the government's, you know, Debt's ballooning or whatever, which I guess maybe, you know, there's some good arguments that it is, but. Dollars dying. Dollars dying, yeah. No one's going to trust us. Our aircraft carriers are worth nothing. But that's another that's another thing. Infrastructure, yeah. I mean, everyone agrees. Should be great. Autodesk, let's go. Altria, too. Sneaky one for that. Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's Might true. Little, yeah, there is some stereotyping, but yeah. It's not a stereotype. Stats are stats. Yeah. All right. Well, you have any more? Uh, yes. Okay. I was going to do Robinhood IPO, so I guess this is the last one. What do you think about this? I got a proposition for you. I'm going to read this newswire. Or, yeah, business. What is that thing? Business press or something? I don't know. Newswire. I can never get that right. Uh, Musk Metals acquires the, quote, Elon lithium property in Quebec. Musk Metals Corp. Quote Musk Metals or the company CSE MUSK, that's their ticker, is pleased to announce that it has entered into an agreement to acquire 100% interest in the prospective Elon lithium property that spans over 245 hectares. Hec- uh, I don't know how to say that. Hec- you know, hectares. You know, like if it's an acre, but it's larger. <laughs> I can't, I can uh, never say that word. In Lacorn and Fiedmont townships of Quebec. Uh, this is not associated with who you're thinking of, Tesla or Elon Musk, but what a news release trying to just flood in the algos or the, you know, the clickbaity things like six times there. Yeah. Anyone that puts, I feel like they're just hoping for the zoom ticker catastrophe to happen. Yes. yes. Equity raise. (laughs) I mean, your approximation, your, how close you are to Elon Musk is. Or if anything that he says or if you use words that he uses, apparently you're worth more. So this company is trying to use it to their advantage. Maybe they go up 10x and uh, they do a nice equity raise. That would be some unique fundraising for sure. Uh, but uh, uh, obviously they're kind of – it's probably fraud. But <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Uh, thank you, Jim Gillies, for coming on the show. Uh, am I blanking on anything? No. I mean, check out the History Financial Market Show. We're not going to blabber about it each week. It's on our different feed. Um, check out Sound Investing. Like we always say, $7, $10 off with code CCM. Yep. Uh, 
We are not financial advisors here at Chit Chat Money, so anything we say is not fi- financial advice or recommendation. Uh, general partners at Arch Capital may have positions in securities discussed on this podcast, so keep that in mind. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.